0: Too many days in the darkness. Welcome to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by PreCure.com, the podcast which brings you the latest in science and practice and challenging mainstream medicine and finding new and exciting ways of having a happier and healthy life. This series is looking specifically at mental health. We've become really concerned about the lack of. Of translation of what science knows into what medicine does. In most societies, including the one I live in, one in five of us will have a serious mental health problem at some stage. The infrastructure, the practice, the gap between treatment and best practice is massive. This podcast series aims to do something about it. Prevention is cure. I'm your host, Professor Grant Scott Sonia English is the head of our coaching faculty here at Precure. And Sonia has a long experience in the medical system as a critical care nurse and intensivist in those systems, training doctors, uh, living on the edge of life and death and seeing both every day, and I think you're going to find her perspective and her stories around using her coaching, but what goes on and how we need to talk more about living and dying are important things to live a long and healthy life. Without further ado, here's Sonia English. Enjoy.
1: Too many days in the darkness
0: without a glimpse of the light. Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight Sonia, you've got a couple of different things you do. One is what you've been doing most of your career, and which is uh, a critical care nurse and working in hospitals and intensive care units. And the second is that you're a head coach at Precure. Uh, I just want to sort of talk about these two completely different worlds that you walk in at the moment. Why don't we start with, with what a critical care nurse does and what your day and life looks like in that setting and what your joys and frustrations are?
1: Okay, so at the moment I'm a critical care nurse specialist in outreach So that's almost like a a rescue service Where I go out onto the wards and I uh, rescue deteriorating patients And start early resuscitation, assess them, form impressions And then escalate to senior staff, specialists, people around the hospital Bring them back into ICU or to coronary care or the like So it's quite an involved job I think the things that I love about it is it's very autonomous Uh, I get to make decisions and I get to time to assess patients as a whole holistically again it's not a lot of time but I can see the bigger picture on clients so I think that's the joy of my job and what I love about it, it's almost equal to my health coaching job and that it's a preventative focus preventing organ failure allowing the time to see the bigger picture, start preventing that organ failure and prevent them coming into ICU or coronary care or the like, so that's the, the great part
0: about it. If you come into ICU what's your chances of leaving again? Well I mean you're going to leave but leaving alive.
1: The chances really are around your chronic illness, where you started from when you came into the ICU. If you've got a lot of chronic illness, for example, uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, kidney failure, and you've got a lot of those things that are against you, then the chances are very low. If you come in as a healthy and fit person uh, who, you know, eats well, sleeps well, exercises, and you don't have that chronic illness history, you've got a bigger chance.
0: Okay, that's interesting, isn't it? So... Mm -hmm you're actually dealing with people that mm. some of who do die and could die at any moment and many are the, at, at the, more or less at the natural end of their life and some people who aren't anywhere near the natural end of their life but have got something that's gone acutely wrong. How does that all play out and what are your thought processes around that? And mm.
1: <laughs> I think it's really important to understand with critical care that we don't admit everybody. We admit those that we can... Reverse the reversible organ failure, but also return them to a functional quality of life. And that is, I guess, the criteria for admission to ICU. We really, I guess, the Hippocratic oath for clinical staff is to do no harm. Yep. So, what we need to do is establish their functional health, find out, you know, how far they can walk. Can they dress themselves? What can they do normally? And we look at the organ failure under a microscope. We look at all their blood results, their investigations, and we make a decision on you know talking to whanau and family and the client on their wishes where and when we can. Often we're not able, and it's last you know end of ditch, but. What we do from there is make a decision, is can we, with our therapy and ICU, reverse that organ failure with our therapies and can we then get them to a reasonable quality of
0: life? Right, so I I guess most people, including myself, have this naive thought that if you're really sick, they'll just bang you in ICU anyway, even if you're going um, off the edge, and that's not the case, right?
1: It is absolutely not the case. It is really important that we do no harm and that you know, we don't want to put someone in ICU. It's very invasive. It's painful at times. It's quite distressing. And we don't want to do that harm when we're actually not going to make them any better.
0: So these are there's decisions about people living and dying and something yeah. probably we're not really much good at facing in yeah. our society. Yeah. I know you you talk a lot about that. Just want to sort of explore that whole issue a bit yeah. more about, you know, Um, how that plays out in a hospital how it would better play out in a hospital what distresses you about that Mm.
1: Well I think you've really hit the nail on the head Grant because this is the piece that really I find the most frustrating and heartbreaking. I think that in western culture we do not accept death you know, it is, it's is—it's a reality for all of us. And what I see now in our health system, in our sickness system, is people that are, you know, really suffering with a whole lot of therapies and really haven't had those difficult conversations with their clinicians, with the clinical staff about what is the reality of the trajectory of the rest of their life? And, you know, what is it that they really want if they really knew what was going on? Is it
0: not explained to them? They're not aware of it or they just don't want to hear it? What's what's going on there?
1: I think it's a combination of all of those things. I think often at the beginning of diagnosis, people are in shock. They don't hear and it's not... Something that is a theme throughout their treatment. I think one of the things that's happened with our health system is that we're very much in silos. People see an oncologist, they then see a renal specialist, and they see a whole lot of specialists, and the right hand doesn't talk to the left. So we don't really know where our patients and clients are in terms of the mental health psychological connection with what's going on with them. I also think when they come in acutely, physicians are really really busy and no one's got the time to have that conversation but for me as a critical care nurse and advanced care practitioner this is the most important conversation what are their wishes what is it they really want and what understanding do they have
0: And do you have those conversations? I do. And how does it even start? How do you do it and how do you...
1: Yeah. So unfortunately for me, I meet people when they're deteriorating, you know, when their organs are starting to fail, when, you know, when they're breathless and they're really unwell. I do absolutely have those conversations and I use curious questions. I ask them, what is it you really want? What is going on for you? What do you know already? And I can tell you, hand on heart, through years of experience here, when people are really sick, when they're actively dying, they know it. It's almost like the elephant in the room. And I've had so many patients and clients over the years when I've said to them, you're dying. When I'm honest with them, with their families, thank me. Hug me and say... I now can get my family from Wellington yeah. I now can do the things that I need to do to say goodbye to my family and it's just it is, it's a really difficult conversation but it's one of the most important conversations I have as a
0: nurse and I mean it's just hard to understand and it's just happening daily, like how do you do this like, yeah. and, and why are you doing it and why are other people missing it, what's different there
1: I think why I'm doing it is because they are dying often and because years of experience. I've also had advanced care training Um, and because 25% of the patients I see as a critical care outreach nurse specialist I'm having this conversation with. This is well documented in the evidence Um, that um, response teams such as myself have this conversation regularly. It's not something that's not unknown. I think nurses are about caring, we're about compassion, we're about real and we see patients every day a lot of the time clinicians come in, they see them for five minutes, for us we are there with the reality of what's happening and I think care um, and health is about being honest, about listening to your clients and asking them what do you really want
0: And, and what do people say what are the range of things that people will say to you when they, when they actually realise what's going on and, and mm. confront that
1: I think the range is absolutely full from absolute shock from anger from acceptance you know the whole stages of grief yeah. but I think it's the way that you do it finding out what they already know first and where they're at because often there's gaps in the knowledge and that's commonly what I find and it's filling in those gaps but the question of what concerns you the most what's most important to you what do you really want and then an absolute pregnant pause as far as saying nothing else and being strong enough to hold that space your patient will fill that and they will tell you and you know there'll be tears, there'll be anger but they will tell you because someone's given them the space to you know take control
0: and when that you talk about this do not resuscitate mm. is that an order or a instruction mm. how that gets put somewhere mm. for everyone to identify when they make that decision what, what's happening there and then when someone agrees that that's what they want
1: I think there's such a misconception out there on what do not resuscitate means yeah. and and the DHBI work in and many it's not for triple seven yeah. and or not for you know whatever their numbers are yeah. but I think what people think is that they're not going to get care if they say that and I really think it's important to understand that that is not true. For, if not for resus is we're not going to jump on your chest and do CPR and shock you um, and do all of those things. Now, when you have a cardiac arrest or an arrest in a hospital situation and you've got a lot of chronic disease, the chances of you getting back to where you were are minimal. And it's actually very aggressive. It's messy. It's awful. Um, and it's really I don't think conducive to good outcome I think when you sign that or you agree to that non-resuscitation order you're saying this is what I want I don't want that but I do want other cares and I think advanced care planning conversations that you have with clients is what is it you want you might still want antibiotics and treatment you might still want that chemo that radiotherapy but if your heart stops you're dead And And that's the reality, and you don't want it restarted. The chances of you having a hypoxic brain injury, an injury without oxygen to your brain, is very high. And I see that in ICU when people are resuscitated, and honestly, it's not pleasant.
0: So one thing that stuck in my mind from a conversation a couple of years ago was a description of an elderly woman who was at the end of her life, Mm. um, who died, I think you described it as relatively peacefully, in the hospital yes and then and just correct me I mean this you might not recall the exact incident but then um, she was everyone came rushing in and she was resuscitated mm. um, and you described that as a terrifying experience for her yeah um, and she was revived um, and then she survived for another several days um, in some pain and discomfort um, and then she eventually died um, and you, I think, would describe me your frustration um, and the grief that it caused you. Mm, mm. Um, and then, so that's really stuck in my mind because it's mm. not my reality in preventive medicine because no. I'm helping healthy people try and keep a healthy yeah. diet. Yeah. Um, and then I talked to you just before we started this today and you said, oh, that happens, oh, I don't know, every week or every other day. Yeah. Tell me more about yeah. that.
1: I think what happens is... We get patients in that have had a long chronic illness and they're at end stage. You know, they're cahexic. They're, they're really, um, really nutritionally poorly functioning. You know, they've got a poor quality of life. They've been, you know, their career is hospital clinic appointments. That's what they do. Um, you see them, they've got no recess status. You arrive, they're deteriorating, there's no decision. And you have to resuscitate because if there's no decision, you have to jump on the chest and start CPR. Now, for me, I see that weekly, monthly. I see it a lot. And it is heartbreaking because I know if someone sat down with them and, and really truly described what the outcome of that would be, what it would look like, and what the options that they have truly are and had that brave conversation, I know in my heart they wouldn't want it. I mean, I you,
0: you would say that about yourself, wouldn't you? I'd yes. say that about myself. I think 100% everyone, everyone, say everyone no. listening, would say that, right? It's yes. like, do you want to die peacefully now, yeah. or have a terrifying experience of being resuscitated yeah. only to die again shortly after in yeah. pain? Like, yeah. who, who's going to choose B, yeah. option B? There.
1: Well, they're in stage disease, yeah. and what's really heartbreaking is they truly don't understand that. And again, it's about they may have had a conversation, but it's not a theme within. You know their care trajectory, and yeah. I, I don't worry.
0: So, what can we do as a society and as, as individuals with our own families and with ourselves? Mm. You talk about uh, this uh, advanced care planning. Mm. Um, mm. What does that mean? What is that process? I think,
1: I think the first thing to say about that is it's we need to change the culture. We need to have these brave conversations. We need to talk to our families, to our loved ones at all ages. Anything can happen at any time. And advanced care planning is an initiative um, from the Health Quality and Safety Commission of New Zealand um, and in other countries as well. And it's about having the time to talk to your GP or someone you trust um, in the health professional um, specialist realm who will talk to you about... If something happened, yep. if you're, you know, heading toward end stage disease, wherever you're at, what would you really want? What are your wishes? If you couldn't communicate, what would you like from woe to go? You know, but we and don't want to
0: have those. Why don't we want to have those? I don't want to have those. I don't want to. You yeah. think you start? I start talking to, noise my wife about death. It's like going to bring it. Closer or something that was going to yeah. cause it. I don't know. That's sort of it's bad luck, or yeah. uh, or I don't know why, why.
1: It seems to be a fear. Yeah. A fear that if I talk about it, it might happen, yeah. or you know, if if that is something that I discuss, it might happen. Yeah. Again, it would be a coaching conversation around you know what's going on underneath Grant, <laughs> which is fascinating. But yeah. I think well, I'm that not, it's. I'm, I,
0: but I don't. Like, cause I look at my dad; he's got cancer, and I think yeah. dad really is scared of dying. Of course, um, but I, I don't actually feel scared of dying at all. I'd rather not die. No. I'd rather be alive. Yeah. Like, that seems like yeah. something, but yeah. I'm not. I'm in no way scared of it. Yeah. But I'm still not having those conversations. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. And I feel very similar to you, Grant, is that I want a quality, yeah. over a quantity. I don't want. For me, what I see happening to the patients and clients out there, I just, it is awful. And I think there's this, there's this block. Yeah for it's not accepted in our culture or in our society to talk about it and we have to overcome it. We
0: have and to and it. We, we're actually heading in the other direction though, do you reckon? Like it's yes. been interesting with um, COVID. Now, no one wants to die of COVID and, no. and we don't want to have a burden from that. No. Um, but it seems to me that we've almost gone, you know, we're going to avoid that type of death at all costs right. regardless of the other quality of life costs yeah. and everything. And it's, it, we've, we've, we're sort of going the other way.
1: We absolutely are. We're doing mm-hmm. everything everything in our power to preserve life at all costs and you look at a lot of the people and I'm not saying all and I know the evidence is evolving with COVID but a lot of the people that are getting this are chronically very, very ill. You know, they have a, you know, a myriad of um, chronic illnesses and underlying illness, yeah. which for some reason isn't mentioned.
0: Yeah, right. So, and that's an important yeah. feature as well. You isn't know,
1: it? we look at things like HbA1c. You know, yeah. their insulin resistance. Yeah. A lot of these people have high sugary blood. Yeah. Um, and they you know, they've been chronically ill. It's yeah. just not recognised, and they don't know they've got it. Well,
0: that's another interesting. Yeah. One. So, um, so I'm not talking about um, infectious. Disease. Well, I guess it's infectious as well, mm. um, you know, surgery, yes, um, recovery from any invasive procedure in a hospital, like your blood sugar being high. Um, is a really unfavourable thing, isn't it? Of
1: course it is, yeah. Uh,
0: and and that's, again, it's not really discussed much, and it's something no. we've got quite a lot of control over.
1: Yeah. yeah. It is, you know, what's interesting is that you hear the conversations in the background as a clinician from medical staff, um, you know, talking about someone that's come in with horrific multi-organ failure and uh, acute illness in ICU, and they've had a high HbA1c for two years. Yeah. They've had multiple... Appointments with clinicians, but nothing's changed.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Another thing that I want to explore now is you mentioned to me before we started I think you'd find it really interesting to follow me around for a (laughs) 12 hour shift I I, I would I think first of all I wouldn't be physically up to it but but second of all (laughs) I think you would what do you what do you mean by that and you talk about the state of our hospital system and you talk about a sickness system just take me through what that shift looks like and feels like and why it's not as good as you would like
1: I think why I say that when I think about it is because we're tasking. Yeah. We're, it's a band-aid over problems. We're you know, giving the fluids, giving the antibiotics, fixing the sepsis, but we're not seeing the whole person. Yeah, I think it is about putting fires out. I feel like I'm constantly putting fires out. Mm-hmm. My desire as a Critical care outreach nurse is to go deeper than that Mm. and I guess practice with the view to making sure this patient is not going to come back. The reality of that is they all know my name. Yeah, right. Um, Oh, you're back, you know, and that the looks on the faces of the staff in the hospital um, around how short staffed, how. You know, hard it is to keep the chronic illness that's rising under control. And I think that's the view that I want you to see is that this is a pandemic in and of itself.
0: Of of chronic disease. Of
1: chronic disease. And people are coming back so often in their acute phase. We're putting a Band-Aid over it. Fixing it, you know, doing the resuscitation, um, and then they're coming back again. We're not fixing them.
0: We're not normalising their blood glucose or sorting no, their insulin no. out or whatever.
1: Yeah, actually, <laughs> what we're doing is we're normalising the abnormal.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Normalising yeah. the abnormal.
1: Yeah. So it's not normal to have a chronic HbA1c of 109. Yeah. But we are saying, yep, we've fixed you. Off you go.
0: Yeah, you're right now. Yeah, have in. your insulin.
1: Have your um, so normalising the abnormal and a clients not that aware of how sick they are.
0: And so so the infrastructure to help people learn to eat better or exercise more or do all those things and the psychological aspects of bringing them to that meeting whether there is that sort of coaching type philosophy that, yeah. that doesn't exist right? And is it, it doesn't. It, no. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, and is that why it's because you've been more drawn to coaching yes. um, and now you're an experienced yes. coach. Yes. Uh, so tell us about that journey and how yeah. you started that and, and yeah. let's get into a bit of coaching. Let's see the, the glass half full side of this.
1: So that's a really good question because I was a nurse educator in the ICU for many years yeah. and I come from an educator advice telling people what to do kind of paradigm mm. and but I could see that that wasn't making any difference really um, you know you've got a client that survived a critical illness you know multi-organ failure mm. there were times that were touch and go they're in this resonant state of I've survived, I've lived and that's the time to jump in and get in there with that mm. lifestyle medicine um, they're given their medications a little bit of advice and off they go
0: yeah.
1: um, and you know in your heart that that's not enough yeah. And so, because they've still
0: got the exact same chronic illness, same and it's and actually it's getting worse.
1: Exactly, and yeah. we're not winning, and we'll, we know we'll see them back. Yeah. So, I guess for me, it was diving deeper on what's really going on for these clients, but also, I guess giving them back the power. Yeah. Because we need people in our community to beat this chronic health. Pandemic, we need them to be proactive. We need to understand their bodies, be mindful of what's going on, and take control. We take the control away from them in the hospital. Right. Cause, I want to give it back.
0: Because uh, uh, if you're coaching, if you're just meeting yeah. someone that you know, otherwise, you know, extensively sort of healthy in the community, yeah. or at least not sick, yeah. then you ask them about what the important things are in their life. then yes. I've never met a person that the top one or two wasn't their health. Exactly. Um, and the health of the people around yeah. them. I mean, yeah. that's your experience as well?
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, health, and I think the people that I see they realize that even more because they've had a crisis yeah. and they've realized actually without my health I have nothing. Yeah. So, yes, I do see that very much. But that soon fades.
0: Yeah. So, for people who haven't heard of health coaching, what, what does a health coach do? What sort of some some mm-hmm. of the principles here, how do you teach that? What do yeah. you what do you do?
1: So, a health coach is someone who works with a client to meet them where they are right now. They Uncover what are the values and visions, what is it that they want for their health, what are their dreams, what is it that really will keep them healthy and longevity
0: of health. So you're not starting a a conversation with you're too fat, you need to lose some weight. That's not a health coaching starting point.
1: Yes, it can be. Um, It can be, I want to lose weight. Oh, no,
0: but you're not telling them they're too fat. No,
1: no, the GP's told them, actually.
0: Well, that's right, yeah. Uh, Actually... And this doesn't work, does it?
1: No, and actually, I just had a new client recently who literally had that conversation, felt really shameful about it, but was brave enough to contact a health coach myself and say... Okay, I've been told I'm too fat. I feel really upset about it. Um, I've been given no uh, advice on what to do. Yeah. And I saw you advertised. Yeah. Right? Um, can you help me?
0: And then so what do you do? You say, okay, yeah. um, how does the conversation go from there?
1: So the conversation from there is what do you really want? Yeah. What matters the most? What do you see as a vision for your health? So what I do is I think about what Am I seeing in front of me now? What is what it is that really matters? What's their culture? What are their spiritual um, beliefs and their what's their mental well-being in front of me right now? What are their dreams and hopes? And what is their vision for health? What does it look like for them? What are the? What is their perception of good health? Because often a client's perception is related to their life experience, their culture. You know, they might have had a really, really awful experience in the health system, and yeah. they're really quite scared. And that's not uncommon.
0: Right. Or they might have tried various different types of, yeah. of ways Diets. to lose weight before, and not yeah. only have they yeah. failed for them, yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they've made mm. things worse in the long run. Mm. And so, mm. so you're asking. Uh, Open-ended questions. That's right. You're trying to get them to be engaged in talking and you're trying to figure out where they are at. That's right. And then when you figure that, you're trying to, when you say meet them where they're at, what do you mean by that?
1: So what I want to do is give them the power. They're in the driving seat as, this is who I am, this is what's happening for me now, then to look at where they want to be. So as a health coach, they're driving the process of, I am just supporting them. I'm asking curious questions to, I guess, increase their awareness of what's really going on for them. I want to go on a journey discovery with them on, you know, what is is it I can do to improve my health? Where is it I want to start? What are the barriers in the way? Yeah. And what do I know what do I need to know what are the possibilities for me so it's an exploration of what health is what I can do what matters and where I want to go and I just help move
0: them along so tell me about this concept of resonance yes what's that about
1: resonance is one of the things we know in health coaching is that emotion drives change and resonance is that feeling that you get when you're on top of the world you're feeling really alive and things are going great and we know humans you know life's a struggle it's not always going to be amazing you have good days and you have bad days but a resonant Time is when things are amazing. You feel like you're strong, you've got the power to move forward and you can do things. And one of the techniques we use in coaching is to be curious and drive them into a state of resonance. Ask questions. What gives you joy? What are you most proud of? What gets you up in the, out of bed in the morning? To make contact with their resonance and their positivity. Coaching is all about moving a client Positively forward To where it is They want to go
0: And then what about The opposite of that Which is this idea Of dissonance
1: Dissonance is that Whole shame That I talked about With the lady That rang me The other day Um, Her GP had told her She's fat do something about it with no thought on what so she could do.
0: I think there's actually data on that just to interrupt yeah. that when the GP tells someone they're too fat and should do something about it then on a subsequent visit they usually a, a couple of kilos heavier whereas yeah. if the, all they did was reframe that and go um, h- how are you feeling about your health yeah. they not even mention weight yeah. they often yeah. come they may come back lighter so that's a really interesting idea Isn't about half. Fascinating, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's
1: that feeling of shame feeling of being judged yeah. you know um people are doing things here to me and I just I have no control. Yep. Um, so we don't want that for our clients. What we want is for them to be self actualized, to take the lead, be proactive and one of the ways we do that is with accountability. Yeah. We find out what their goals are, how they're gonna do that and when they're gonna do it and we champion them.
0: Yeah. And so so what was an example of someone helping them find their own accountability how would it work in practice
1: so for example if someone wanted to make some changes around their nutrition yeah. for example they only wanted to eat whole real food nothing in a packet yeah for the week yeah. i would say to them what are you going to do tomorrow yeah um and, for, and they would give me back the detail on what they're going to do i would say when are you going to do it and they're going to give me the detail on when that's going to happen. And so what we're doing is we're creating a picture or visualisation of the actual steps that they're going to take. Um, before that we would have talked about resonance and all the other stuff. So that would have been the driver of change. And then I would ask them, how do you want to be account- held accountable? Or how will I know that you've done it? So that's that whole Well, coaching. those are big questions, right? They're very big
0: But questions. you haven't just come out with that. You've got to that point through them telling you that's what they want to do. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah,
1: so we've got that visual of where they are now in front yeah. of me, yeah. where they want to be. We've done some work in the middle yeah. around awareness. A- and they
0: could be texting you back or something going, yes. hey, I've had a good day, yes. Yes. and you'll reply, I'm oh, um, yeah. um, Louise... Mm-hmm. Often is getting back texts from people about yes. did this, didn't that, had a bad yes. day, she'll be texting yes. them. It's yes. yeah, so that's a sort of a yeah. way of interacting. Mm, um, mm. outside of just that formal session yeah. as well
1: I think it's also important to say Grant that change is messy and mm. habit change is not easy yeah. and you know you're also working with your clients around their self talk yeah. about their negative self talk and trying to deal with that but also you know they're going to have bad days That's we're humans yeah. um, and techniques on how to get back on that track how to stay with the eyes on that goal
0: Oh yeah, okay so that, that, that let's talk about that well I first of all I agree with that that uh what you do most of the time matters not what you do all of the exactly. time because it's, you know, as a yeah. human mm. you know, especially in a world that, let's just take diet in a world that yeah. supports junk food yeah. it's actually a pretty big effort to, so to eat hard. healthy and, and, yeah. and, and to maintain that 100% of the time is actually yeah. virtually impossible so yeah. um, you talked about that negative self talk and what's one another concept in health coaching is this mm. idea of the saboteur what is it tell us, what's yeah. that? I actually found this really powerful yeah. now, tell us how, about that and people can do a little exercise on themselves about that
1: so the saboteur, we all have one as humans. We have this voice in our head that almost derails us and says, you can't do that, you're good at not good enough, you know, you're not going to get that job promotion, you're not going to be able to do that new position that you've got. And it's quite normal. And I think by understanding that, by naming it, by calling it a name, and bringing it to the surface in your life, and understanding that it's always going to be there, and then developing techniques to you know answer that saboteur back and and pop it back down where it belongs then that allows you to not derail yourself and the goals that you have and actually keep moving forward positively
0: so is that sort of like the idea i mean we've all got all sorts of thoughts going on in our mind the whole time um i'm thinking i could do this (laughs) um It'd be awesome I did that, or I can't do this, or I might do that, or this is yeah. bad and this is good. Yeah. Um, but those thoughts aren't, don't define us, they're just thoughts, yes. right? And yes. some of those thoughts, have, there's a negative voice, and some have a positive voice. That's and right. and, yeah, and you're helping people make a decision about, how much they let that define them and what they do about that.
1: Absolutely. And also being mindful of it being there yeah. and not letting it get the better of them also can work with positive voices like talking about, you know, what's confidence on you going to say? Yeah. Um, you know, but that is only ever taken from the client's language. Yeah. And what the skill is in coaching is really listening to the client's language, allowing them to name the saboteur, but also... N- naming who they want to be. I often hear clients talk about strong Sonia or use my name for one of another one, but mm-hmm. you know, or confident Sonia or you know, so naming that positive self talk and tipping the balance on that's the person I'm gonna listen to. Oh, all not right, so the so, 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 so,
0: so, the, so you might give the uh, confident voice um, strong Sonia, and you just might call the saboteur Fred or something. Yeah, exactly. um, and and <laughs> sort of distance that negative voice yeah. from from yeah. from being the thing that defines you. Oh, that's an interesting yeah. thing, isn't it?
1: And coaching is all about moving the client forward positively. So I think that those concepts are absolutely pivotal to them understanding some of the stuff that's underneath everything. Yeah, um, that's driving them not to achieve their health goals.
0: The coaching. Aspect has now become more powerful for you than doing your intensive care. Has that surprised you?
1: 100% it's surprised me. What is the most surprising thing is 30 years of ICU nursing. And I've always prided myself on being a good communicator with clients in crisis and patients in crisis and, you know, know that I've learned a lot through pattern recognition of working with people, you know, front row seat to human tragedy, I'd say, is where I've been Mm. in my career. And I think what blew me away when I started coaching is how much I didn't know and how much I've learned about humans that has amazed me since I've been a coach and an example is uh, an old chap that came into hospital a little while back and he came and he couldn't breathe. He was really distressed. He was in the recess. We got him We got him sort of a little bit of oxygen and we needed to put him on a little device to help his breathing, to blow open his airways to mm-hmm. help him a little bit. And he he just wouldn't have it. And... Using my coaching skills Now as a nurse As an ICU nurse The first thing My priority is airway Breathing, circulation Get the device on Yeah we want them to be breathing breathing. It's not going to end well Exactly But my coaching head Went to him Held his hand And said What's concerning you the most? Yeah My cat My cat at home Someone's got to get to my cat
0: Oh poor old no, <laughs> I know, and but it's a thing. I know, I get it, and I, get I was it. like, "What's yeah.
1: most important?" Yeah. So we managed to sort his cat out, and yeah. guess what? Yeah. We got the airway and the breathing sorted. Yeah. Now that's a really powerful that's example. A really, no,
0: yeah, yeah, that's a small... Of,
1: you know, and this I'm going around the wards now. Yeah. And I'm saying to the patient, you know, what's most important to you right now? Yeah what I've been doing in my practice is what's most important to me is getting your blinking blue lips red again. Yeah, right. Um, Or, you know, you've got no circulating volume to take oxygen to your brain, you're confused. Yeah. Yeah. Say to the family, you know, what do you think is most important here? And they've got the answer. Yeah. You know, so I think it allowed me to listen.
0: What an interesting situation. You know, the emergency room, and it's like, hang on, everyone, stop. We need to get the cat sorted.
1: Yep.
0: And it's a real thing.
1: It's a real thing. So this is about the person in front of you. Yeah. It's not just physical health. Yeah. It's spiritual. It's mental. It's family. Yeah. Family is an important part, of fanao, yeah. Yeah. Um, And it is mental health. And I think this is where we've dropped the ball. I think we're just seeing the physical. We're just seeing the medications, the plaster. Mm-hmm. You know, treat the symptoms. We're yeah. just not... We've lost the holistic frame on working with our patients and clients.
0: Oh, let's talk about mental health then, Uh, if if you're happy to do that. I, of course am. Um, And, you know, you've been trained in that as well. You've spent your life looking at different things. Like Mm. New Zealand, like every other Western country um, and many developing countries, has this mental health crisis uh, at the mild to moderate end all age groups especially our young people seem to be prone to this it wasn't a thing it hasn't been a thing it is a thing now Sure. Uh, and then we have this more severe Mm. crisis what what, what do you make of all that?
1: Oh look it's so scary Grant I just I worry like yourself about it and I think it is again another pandemic of but it seems to be...
0: As parents ourselves as well, of kids that absolutely. age. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You hear these words, resilience, anxiety, stress, bandied around the place, yeah. but it's actually real. Yeah. And particularly in the mild to moderate, um, le- levels of anxiety, of burnout, another mm-hmm. word that's bandied around, yeah. um, and stress. And we know in um, lifestyle medicine that stress is bad for you. It causes inflammation. It causes that chemical imbalance. So yeah. I think this is something that we really need to focus on in yeah. our mental first aid yeah. within acute primary healthcare and it's just it's just not happening.
0: So so what do you mean by mental first aid?
1: What I mean by mental first aid is really working with people to take a holistic approach. Yeah. Again, those simple questions and providing real Support and real, I guess, tools. Yeah, uh, it would be like a mental first aid kit. Yep. We have a physical one, yep. you know, it's very well known, but we don't have a mental one. We yep. don't have answers for people. We will say you're stressed, but we give you no tools.
0: So it's interesting. You look at the best practice guidelines for multi-moderate mm-hmm. um, mood problems, which includes anxiety and depression, yep. in this country. It like they're very clear. Yeah they're very well written and they say very clearly that medications are never first line treatments they're last resort treatment and then there's a whole list of interventions um, getting fitter more exercise eating Mm. better sleeping better Mm. connecting with other talk therapies and it goes on what's the reality?
1: The reality that is not mentioned in an acute sector where I work and there's no time. Yeah. There's no experts in that within the healthcare system.
0: Including primary care often. But yeah. Not. not always, but no. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. Um, And you look at the people like, you know, the physiotherapists, the occupational health, you know, all of those people, they're working with the acute problem. They're working with the end of the cliff stuff. You know, uh, there's no holistic approach or toolkit to mental health.
0: Right, and you see health coaching there as well,
1: right? I absolutely hundred percent do. I mean, what has been so clear to me doing this health coaching is there is so much need. But what's even more prevalent to me is the health professionals themselves. Yeah, you know, they're the role models. Yeah, um, they are burnt out. They need, they need that mental t- health
0: toolkit that's for themselves so, as well. So they
1: do, and I think you know, start at the beginning.
0: Yeah. So as we're preparing for this uh, thing that stuck in my mind you talked about we talked about another type of intensive care patient um, that was a result of, of mental health Issues that often ended with overdoses. Yes. Talk, tell me about that type of because that's a totally different thing, right?
1: Yeah, a, so, and, and,
0: that you, and that, that's actually a fair proportion of people.
1: Yes, we see you know it's we see a regular amount of people coming in, sort of end stage, and that you know end stage mental illness, and that they you know they've overdosed. It's a massive crime. So it's, a, help. it's
0: a suicide attempt. It's
1: a suicide attempt. Um, most of those patients make it to hospital, yep. not all of them, and we know that it's a real problem in New Zealand. It's been very well advertised in the media of late. I think that what I've seen over the years is we fix the medical problem, the physical problem, we get uh, a referral off to the specialist, to the psychiatric team, the liaison team, they're popped out on the ward, they have an hour or so interview, Um, a decision is made whether they need to go into a facility in the community or not.
0: And most often not, because often there's no not enough space for that. There
1: is a waiting list as long as your arm, and that's it.
0: And if you look back at their medical history, mm. before they arrive with an overdose, what do you see?
1: Oh, my goodness. I see trauma. I see post-traumatic stress. I see often poverty. I see uh, relationship. Um, issues I see multiple admissions I see you know cries for help I see monthly um, clinic meetings I see also do not show and you know there's a whole psychology why are they not showing? you know we make I think there's a lot of judgment and assumption made on people um, by health professionals, by community. there's a lot of shame um, and I think there's just it's just so broken.
0: And So so part of your view I guess then is that if we like these we're getting the, at ICU mm. with a uh, an attempt to take your own life is like like it's not just at the bottom of the cliff it, it's like a massive cliff It is. Um, and and they, we saw them walking along the trail towards that cliff years ago exactly. and did nothing about it
1: yeah if you were to take the notes yeah. and what we see on the computer and the concerto yeah. notes and look and put it on a graph yeah. it's almost you can see it you know yeah. it's it's a trend Yeah, um, but again we're not we're not no one's taking the time to do that. Yeah. We and, and what's interesting as health professionals is we see that all the time. Yeah, We know the trends, we know the story, but we're still at the bottom of the cliff. How
0: does that feel when this is like a youngish person still yeah. f- potentially full of life?
1: Yeah. Oh, it's, you know, it's so devastating, but it's just as devastating to know yeah. that I can only put a plaster on this. I haven't got the time. <laughs> Yeah. to do something real about it. Yeah. And But what I also know is that small simple things like one question Yeah. you know, one piece of advice around something they could try that's yeah. real
0: yeah.
1: can make a massive difference and you know like there are simple tools that we could put in place. We just need the buy-in. We need the buy-in from you know those management um The people that have the, you know, pen pushers, I guess, for want of a better word, but um, it's all about data. Yeah. You know, that's how health is run on data and um, proof of patient outcome. Yeah. Um, But that's not where the money's going.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, you talk about this quite calmly. Yeah. Um, for someone who's not facing this daily, it's pretty confronting, frankly. Yeah,
1: yeah I can um, see
0: that. Uh, so I'm just sort of going, wow, well, you know, yeah. like, I mean, it's like, we, yeah. you don't um, think of that. You don't no. think that there's people having to help here at this end and looking yeah. back and going, well, this is coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we could have stopped and, and what do we do now? You don't yeah. think of that. Um, so, no. yes, yeah,
1: That's the very definition, Grant, of compassion. Yeah. You know, empathy is putting yourself in someone's shoes. Yeah. Compassion yeah. is putting yourself in someone's shoes but actually doing
0: something about it. Yeah, right. And
1: that's what we need um, across the board in the healthcare system is some people. Yeah. And we have people out there doing that. Yeah. Dr. Glenn Davies, for example. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Dr. Lily Fraser. Mm. They are not only talking about it, but they're doing it. Yeah. And that gives me
0: hope. That takes some courage though, yeah. right? Oh,
1: my God. Because, you know, the judgment, the assumption that they, they will have
0: yeah.
1: um, is huge, and yet they're doing it anyway. Yeah. And I'm, I guess that gives me great hope that that will have a trickle effect okay. and that will improve. That, for me, is the essence of what needs to happen. It's hope.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. I, for some reason, yesterday I googled the medical model in Wikipedia.
1: Oh, yes. What did you find?
0: Well, it's quite clear that the medical model is um, one which, you know, is defined by a system which treats symptoms um, and problems um, and doesn't seek a solution to them not happening in the first place. Like, like, why, why are we doing that again? Like how's, why? That, how's that? a thing?
1: It's post World War Two. It's never changed.
0: And why? Why? What do you mean by that?
1: Uh, what I mean is, we had a health system um, that was really defined by post World War Two. It was a sickness system. You know, it fixed the problems.
0: And we had a lot of problems.
1: Yes, and yeah. we've never moved from that. Yeah. And I think we look at almost. If we look at coaching, for example, it's based on positive psychology. We look yeah. at what are people's strengths, yeah. you know, what can they actually do? What are their resources? Are, you know, what creativity do they have? And we push them, well, forward forward from that in their own agenda yeah. on their own agenda the sickness system still looks looks at the negative frame what yeah. they don't have you know their symptoms what they need what we can do for them yeah so it's not it's not empowering the person to move forward it's just fixing them
0: what sort of reinvestment would we need
1: a reinvestment in primary care prevention yeah, yeah. reinvestment in thinking about Mental well-being, spiritual well-being, um, family, whanau well-being as a whole. Uh, Tafare te tapa te Whā the yeah. Maori model has got it all there. We've there's been there's already there's years. already four posts of there's four posts of, four posts of the photo. Yeah. yeah, you know it's there. People are learning it in nursing school. Yeah, they're learning it in medical school, but it's not being applied. Yeah. So I think the theory's there. It's applying it.
0: All right, I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you, thank you, Sonia. That's really powerful stuff. I think the, the 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 one thing that I had never occurred to me yeah. is health coaching in an emergency room, and it turns out to be the old yeah. guy's worried about his cat, yeah. and you know, like yeah. it makes so much sense.
1: Yeah, do you it? know that health coaching for me has changed my life, yeah, um, in so many ways. Um, I can't even begin to tell you, Grant, yeah. but I think. What it's done is it's restored my faith that I can make a change and that how amazing people are.
0: Yeah, they want it. The the power's there, right? Yeah, they
1: have the power, and we just make so much judgment on them. Yeah, right. And actually, they can do far more than we give them credit for. Yeah.
0: You've been listening to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, with me, Professor Grant Schofield. At Precure, we're developing a way to help medicine help change the world. We're filling that gap. We're helping train health coaches and mental health coaches. We're bringing short but effective behavior change programs over 29 days to you, to help you learn for yourself and help others as well be healthier. We're trying to create a community of like-minded people, people like you who want to use the latest science and practice to change lives for the better. Join us at Precure.com. Get involved in our communities. We'd love to have you along for the ride. Precure.com. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight